God, thank you for uh, your word, uh, which scripture tells us that we should long after, as a baby longs after uh, its mother's milk. Thanks for baby's cries and how they remind us of uh, our need for you and how you so tenderly watch over us. God, what we've walked in with this week is a complicated mess of stuff, but we want to just hear from you today. And so we pray that for a minute you would help us kind of be here and be present. Wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. And so we expect to hear from you and to see you. God, maybe not in anything I say, but maybe in a verse that somebody flips to or just sees in this text, would you speak to us really in the only way that you can because yours is the only voice that we really need to hear. God, thank you for using us um, to um, be at McGuffey and at Summit and in and, and our community to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. Thank you, God, for that opportunity to be at McGuffey and for people to see the Regen t-shirts uh, and for us just to kind of very quietly point to you. God, we just pray for um, opportunities to connect with our friends and our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers um, with the gospel this week. Uh, help us to see people the way you see people. Break our hearts for what breaks your heart and use this text and what we say here today to help us to point people to Jesus. Amen. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about any person is what comes to mind when they think about God. A.W. Tozer said what, comes to, what is most important about any person is what comes to mind when they think about God. And my suspicion is that most people that we know, when they think about God, he has the same face that our parents did when we brought home a detention slip. When people think of God, they think of God as disappointed, as maybe even angry with them. They look at the failures and mistakes and messes they've made in their life, and they cannot imagine a God who would think on them and look on them favorably, much less with affection. And I'm beginning to wonder if a lot of the people in your life and mine that are just totally shut down to Jesus, if it's not so much a philosophical or theological objection to the message of Jesus, but a deeply felt belief that if God really were to enter into their life, that their mistakes would be too great for even God to handle. And so they defensively detach from him before God could ever really have anything to say about it. But let me ask you, this morning, if you were to picture the face of God, what would his face be looking like? What would the expression be? If you were to tell God your biggest mistake, your biggest failure, what would you say? More importantly, what would God say back? In other words, what does God have to say to us in our failure? Now, if you've not failed this week or this month, if you could do us a favor and just never come back. <laughs> because we've kind of got a thing going here and uh, it's a whole room of messed up people, and if you're perfect, it's just gonna get awkward really quick. So there's other churches I, I hear where perfect people are, uh, and that's not ours. So just, you know, if you don't wanna leave, that's fine, just go to sleep, because this, this sermon has nothing to do with you. Um, there's some nice chairs there in the back that you could kinda stretch out on. I, but if you have failed this week, 
If you have messed up, then this sermon is for you. This text, this conversation that Jesus has with one of his followers in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, it's for you. This is a conversation that we can listen into that Jesus wants us to hear. Anybody that has failed, he wants them to hear. He especially wants those of us who say that we are his followers and who have failed. He wants us, the failed followers, to hear this this morning. And this is what he wants us to hear. Look at John chapter 21. I'm going to read actually verse 1 through about verse 19. And the text says this, Jesus appeared again to the disciples sometime later beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter and Thomas, who is nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel and from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who by the way in other parts of the Bible are called the sons of thunder. So come up with a cooler nickname than that, why don't you? Um, the sons of thunder and two other disciples. Kyle, who wants to be known, if he had been in scripture, would only ever get the name two other disciples. Okay. <laughs> Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll come too. So they went out on the boat and they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. So he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, thanks for that mental image Bible, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards away. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. Now come and let's have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, uh, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said, then take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. He was grieved that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. John 21 begins with the disciples of Jesus fishing. They, they had their initial encounter with Jesus and John chapter 20, but some time has passed. That's why 21 verse 1 says later or sometime later. Some time has passed, and in that time that's passed between that first encounter with the risen Jesus and now, the disciples have gone back to what they know, fishing. The problem is in the three years that they stopped fishing and started following Jesus, they've gotten a little rusty, and so they fish all night, and they catch absolutely nothing. And as they pull in their nets and their heads are hung in shame and failure and they haven't even caught a minnow, they hear a voice call from the beach, fellas, have you caught any fish? As the water laps against the side of the boat, they look at the empty nets and somebody says, no. 
throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some, the man yells back. And in my mind's eye, I see Peter and John and, and Thomas and the others. They, they look at one another and some roll their eyes. What, what in the world is this going to do? Others shrug their shoulders because we've got nothing else to do today. And so they throw their nets onto the right side of the boat. And before they know it, the deck starts to tip and everything starts to lean to one side because fish are filling the nets. And, and John and Peter look out to shore to this voice that called to them. And John simply looks at Peter and he says, it's the Lord. Now, John is always kind of a reflective kind of guy. Uh, but Peter, Peter is a man of action. So Peter, who was probably just wearing like an under tunic, kind of like a, a wife beater in some shorts. Uh, are you allowed to say wife beater in church? I just did. Anyway, he puts his cloak back on and jumps in the water, swims to shore. The rest bring their boat, bring the boat along. And when they get there, they find that Jesus has been making them breakfast. And so they sit and they eat together. But I don't know if you've ever been to one of these family gatherings, maybe a meal with some loved ones when there's kind of some tension in the air. We call that Thanksgiving of 2016 post-election. Uh, there's this awkwardness, this uncomfortableness. The uncomfortableness for the disciples and Jesus wasn't because of who was president, it's because of what one of them had done. You see, a few weeks before, Peter had denied that he ever knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter and Jesus hadn't really had an opportunity to talk about this, and the disciples are realizing this as they eat. And pretty soon it gets quiet, and you can only hear the sound of what their, their utensils on their plates. And finally, Jesus looks at Peter, and you know somebody is going, and all he says is, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus says, she loves Jesus. She says, Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus looks at him again. And in my mind's eye, they don't even break eye contact. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. I mean, they have this conversation that repeats itself and it's almost uncomfortable. It's almost uncomfortable as Jesus asks the same question. And I'm beginning to wonder if I'm one of the disciples, Peter, I think you're getting the answer wrong because he keeps asking the question. <laughs> and yet when Jesus asked the, this question a third time, the text says that Peter's heart was broken, that he was grieved, he was saddened. He was saddened because he's beginning to wonder as Jesus asked this question over and over and over again if he's broken something, if he's gone too far if something has happened between him and Jesus that will, that will never be able to be fixed, Peter's sense of failure and shame just rises up within him. And he gets so anxious. And so finally, when, Peter said, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? A third time, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter just can't even begin to make eye contact with Jesus at this point, but we need to understand something. This is important that Jesus isn't asking Peter this question because Jesus doesn't know the answer. Jesus isn't asking this question because Jesus doesn't know the answer. He's not trying to find out. I mean, Peter himself says, Lord, you know everything. You see, Jesus asked this question to Peter three times because it's not Jesus who doesn't know something, it's Peter who doesn't know something. He asked this question three times, three times, so that Peter can find out what's in his heart. 
So that Peter, who denied Jesus three times, has three chances to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. It's Peter who doesn't. And so Jesus, in his grace, helps Peter discover what was inside of him all along. Reflect on this question for a minute. Do you love me? Jesus doesn't ask Peter about his performance. The question is not, did you do what I asked? The question isn't even, Peter, why did you deny me? He doesn't ask Peter about what he's going to do to make up for his mistake. He doesn't ask for acts of penance. He doesn't say, what are you going to do to make this up to me, Peter? Jesus doesn't ask about the content of Peter's faith or his understanding. The question isn't, do you believe what I have told you? Or even, do you believe in me? Which you would think is where John would write the story and where Jesus would go, because the word believe has appeared more time in John's gospel than anywhere else in the New Testament. But that's not even what Jesus asked. Not about the content of his belief, what he's going to do to make it up for him, about his performance. He simply says, do you love me? This is a simple question, but it's also a very, very uncomfortable one. Jesus is not interested in what you have done or what you can do for him. He's not interested in what you know or how smart you are with Christian stuff. People tell me this all the time. Man, Kyle, I, I don't know the Bible like you do. You're the pastor. You tell us. It's not about how smart you are or what you can do or what you can't do. What Jesus is interested in is your love. He's interested in your affection Jesus said in John 15, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and I remain in his love. Listen, the standard for Christian living, the person who has stepped across the line of faith, the person who has put their trust in Jesus, the person who is born again is the person who simply says, I love Jesus. It's not about doing the right things, at least not at first. It's not knowing the right things, at least not at first. Listen, those things will grow. Instead, the, the primary question that Jesus has is, do you love me? This is really great news for those of us in the room that are kind of just getting started with Jesus because there's all these Christian things that we watch other people do and we're not sure, sure if we're supposed to do them. Side note, there's many things that Christians do that we should probably not do. Uh, but anyway, uh, but, 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 so there's all these things they know and they do and we don't really seem to catch it. And am, am I adequate enough? Am I doing it? But what Jesus wants is our love. A guy that I'm discipling uh, said to me the other day in a conversation, he said, I just love him. We can take it from there. Because a love for Jesus grows in knowledge and grows in skill and grows in character. Because I love my wife I have grown in understanding and knowledge of her. I have un I've grown in knowing what she likes. I've grown in knowing what annoys her when I do it. But the bad news is, is that this idea, this, this question of Jesus, do you love me, opens to us the possibility that we can know the right things and do the right things and still be far from Jesus. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It is possible to know and do the right things and still be far from Jesus because without love for Jesus, there is no relationship with Jesus. Without love for Jesus, there's no relationship with Jesus. Now, this is where it gets uncomfortable. 
This is why women generally populate our churches more than men do, because it's a, it's a love and tenderness and mercy and grace language is a little more acceptable to many women. Uh, I, I think I'm outside the norm on that. I've always been a little bit more of a touchy-feely person anyway. But for some people, including some guys, we're fine with God's righteousness. We're fine with God's holiness and his power, but we're not exactly sure that we want to interact with Jesus on a basis of love. Respect is great, but love is another thing entirely. But Julia invited me, uh, invited me to listen to a song this week that we're actually going to close with this morning. It's called Extravagant. And it starts by saying, you were a lover before time's beginning. You gave your love freely, withholding nothing. But in the bridge, it says, when you pull me close, I won't resist it. God, when you pull me close, I won't resist it. And I heard that, and I pulled out my phone, and I typed a text to Julia, and I said, Julia, I don't know if we should use this song at church. I think it's really intimate language that I think would make people uncomfortable. And it was as if a small voice inside my head, which I think was God's, said, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with a song of intimacy? What's wrong with a song of such relationship and companionship and friendship? You see, Jesus, when he comes bowling into your life, Jesus, more often than not, is the Kool-Aid man. He does not go through the door, he goes through the wall. He comes to invite us into a relationship of love. Jesus did not die to make you and I live in perpetual fear of making a mistake. Nor did Jesus die to kind of cover all our mistakes so that it doesn't really matter if we're good or bad. Jesus came to invite us into a transformational relationship of love that we could dwell with him daily and forever, which is why Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, which if you need a book to read this summer, would you please read The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning? I will make sure there's a copy or two here next week. He says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Jesus wants us living in a place of love even in the midst of our failure, even when we love Jesus imperfectly, which is the only possible way for us to love Jesus this side of heaven. When we love Jesus imperfectly, he wants us called back into a place of love when we fail. He wants us brought back into the center of that when we fail. And so this is what's happening with Jesus and Peter. Jesus is trying to invite Peter back into what he knows to be true about his relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Because if the answer to that is yes, absolutely everything else will fall into place. I promise you. If you love Jesus and you don't know anything else, and truth be told, there are going to be seasons of your life where that's about all you know, we're in the right place. And so in the midst of this, Jesus invites Peter back into a place of love in two different ways. First, he offers Peter a chance to get it right. 
Think about this. One question, do you love me, for every one denial of Peter. For each time that Peter denied Jesus, Peter is given an opportunity to pledge his love and loyalty to Jesus again. Jesus repeats the question to give Peter a chance to repeat and discover what's inside of his heart. This is not giving Peter a chance to undo his mistakes because there is no undo button. Grace and mercy and forgiveness in our lives is not a control Z. It does not delete it, it does not cut it out. In fact, more often than not, when you and I make mistakes, when we fail, we are going to be living with the consequences, period. A marriage that breaks up, a relationship that breaks up, leaves us with consequences, and grace can help us live with those, but it very rarely removes them. You have a conversation with your spouse, or your kids, or a friend, or your parents, and you totally botch it. You totally screw it up. You make a decision in the heat of a moment that has a consequences for the rest of your life. Listen to me, you cannot get a chance to undo it. That's not what grace does. What grace does is it gives us opportunities to get it right the next time. Because odds are, if you have a fight in your marriage, you're probably gonna have that same conversation in the next 48 hours, am I right? Listen, if you are fighting with your kids, you're probably gonna have that conversation pretty quickly. The younger they are, the, more fa- the faster you're probably going to have it, right, Vanessa? I mean, I mean when you, if you're in a pla- weird place with your parents as adult children, which by the way, I think it's harder to be an adult child than it is to be a little child. When you're in a weird place with them, odds are there's going to be a chance to try that again. If you messed up a relationship before, guess what? There are really are other fish in the sea. You're going to be able to try this again. Every time that we fail, we're given an opportunity to try again, and that's what grace does. Grace offers us a new opportunity to try again. This is what it means that his mercies are new every morning. It's that every morning we have the opportunity to give that thing another try. And this, if we start doing that, if we start developing what I'm calling holy resilience, if we start developing holy resilience, we live into what Proverbs 24 says. It says, um, it says the godly man may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. A lot of us treat failure like God is not walking with us. So one disaster leaves us laid out for months and weeks and even years. We never get past it. But Proverbs says when God is walking with you, you have plenty of times to get up. And it's not like seven. It's not like cat's lives or whatever. Like seven is a perfect number. It means that when God is walking with us, we get to keep getting up off the mat again. When Jesus invites us into a place of love and in a relationship of love, our failure from his perspective is covered with mercy so that we can try again. So you're terrified of this new relationship you're in because you're going to mess it up like you messed up the last one. Not necessarily as long as Jesus is at the center of it. You, you, you don't even know how to handle your kids anymore because you feel like you've backed yourself into a corner. You have other opportunities to get up again. This addiction that you're facing, you seem to keep running back to it. His mercies are new every morning. Every day is a fresh chance to try again. So Peter, invite, Peter is invited and we are invited into a place of love to keep trying. That's good news. But in the meantime, we're also called not to self-disqualify, but get back to work. Because Peter's second response, Peter hears Jesus after this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Then tend my flock. After his failure, Peter is called to serve. 
Peter's called not to bench himself. Peter is called not to lay down on the mat. Peter is called to stay in the game. This is not to say that there aren't moments, that there aren't mistakes, that there aren't failures that disqualify. Let me be clear, since I've been in ministry, every big name pastor of churches that I used to listen to their podcasts and follow them, I think almost everyone has left ministry because of moral failing. And it wasn't even like they ran off with the church secretary. I'm talking like one guy became an alcoholic because he just couldn't handle it. He could not handle the pressure. I'm talking one guy was just so stubbornly terrible to the people in his church and that he worked with that he just got booted out. And he's back in ministry at another church in, Cal- in, in Arizona, but we do not, do we hear a peep from him anymore? No, because he's out of the limelight and he's done. There are sins in our lives that are disqualifying. But usually what I find is that the sin in our life that is not disqualifying is what we excuse to disqualify ourselves. And the people who truly are in disqualifying sin just keep going. And so sin and mistakes and failure in your life, when dealt with appropriately, when dealt with appropriately, what does appropriately mean? It means I have confessed my sin to people who love me. I'm walking in community and accountability in that sin. I'm aggressively pursuing righteousness out of it. Um, I am brokenhearted about this. Man, if you are brokenhearted about your sin and your mistake and your failure, let me tell you really what the gospel says is that that is ground zero for God's greatest work of transformation in your life. Find me a person in scripture who is not a giant screw up before God got a hold of them. Moses killed a guy. Uh, David raped Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and killed her husband. And then God said to David, this is a man after my own heart. The problem of us self-disqualifying in our sin is so we screw up, we fail, we mess up, and we take a step back from God's grace and a step back from him actually using that for our good. Our mistakes and our failures in the hands of God are the place in which he can do the most work in us. And yet what we do is we run away from those things. We don't talk about those things. We keep those things secret. And when we do... We are forfeiting grace in our life. And so we tell somebody that we trust. We tell somebody that is like Jesus. We tell somebody that is gracious and holy and we walk with them and in the midst of our failure and find that even in the midst of our failure, even despite our failures, God does something in and through us that we could not have imagined. The good news today is that Jesus is not afraid of your failure. The good news is that Jesus is not afraid of your failure. He's not nearly as afraid of your failure as you are. Instead, our failures become his opportunities to shine his grace through us to demonstrate to a watching world his power and presence, to demonstrate to a watching world that second chances aren't something that we just sing about or write about or poetry about. It's, it, it, it's actually a way of life. Bob Goff says, says this, failure is just part of the process. And it's not just okay, it's better than okay. God doesn't want failure to shut us down. God didn't make it a three strikes and you're out sort of thing. It's more about how God helps us dust ourselves off so we can swing for the fences again. And all of this without keeping a meticulous record of our screw ups. When you get to heaven, God's not gonna be like, hey, I'm glad you're here, we need to talk. 
and he like throws this big book and he's like, so when you were seven, you did this thing, that was very bad of you. Then a day later, you did this thing, it was very bad of you. Fast forward, that's not how eternity is going to be. God is going to welcome us into heaven and on the big screens will be the moments that we swung for the fences. On the big screen will be the moments that we, despite our failure, showed up again and again and again. On the big screen will be the moments that we beat it, that we kicked it, that we overcame it. On the big screen will be that celebration. And so I, my prayer for you is that you would be people who swing for fences. My prayer for you is that you would be people in the midst of your failure, that you would swing for the fences. And if you miss, that you would get back up again tomorrow because his new mercies are there tomorrow and swing again. My prayer for us as a church is that we would fail giant, hugely, badly ways. I think that was not grammar. But my prayer for us is that we would fail swinging for the fences of trying to help people that don't know Jesus know him. My prayer is that you would have awkward conversations with your friends. My prayer is that there'd be awkward moments when you don't know what to say when asked a question, but that you would swing for the fence and find God's grace to be way bigger than your failures. Let's pray. God, we are failures, and uh, we recognize the ways that we have lived outside the bounds this week, but we also hear your voice today calling us beyond ourselves. God, we just, we want to live beyond this stuff. And so we ask to experience your grace that you would help us, um, that you would help us swing for the fence this week to get back up off the mat. God, use even this meal to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.